It seems to me that Master Calvin endeavored to teach us one principal thing. That Christianity is a God-centered religion. You remember the words of the Apostle Paul that of God as source and through God as the sustainer and redeemer of all things and to God as the principal end and goal and purpose of all things. All things have been made. This is a God-centered religion because this is a God-centered reality. As rational creatures, we have been made with faculties so that we might both see this and understand it. We ought not to be surprised that one of our primary functions, therefore, is to worship God, knowing that He is at the center and the heart of all things, and not we ourselves, we Worship and adore him as such. This is a good opportunity. We are going to be considering the employments of the angels from their fall to uh, the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the final judgment, both, uh, both this week and the next week. But we will find that one of their principal employments is... Worship. They are great beings, almost unspeakably wise and mighty, and yet they are creatures that are far from self-absorption, far from thinking of themselves as being the center of all things, but rather they gather about a throne that is the center of all things, even God's throne. As we consider the angels, I would have you consider yourselves. We have been called to examine ourselves once again. Are we eager for the worship of God? Can you say with David, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. Are you happy to have this as one of your principal, if not the principal, employment of your life and being as you glorify God and enjoy Him. One of the ways we can test the sincerity of our worship is our private worship. Do you find yourself eager and ready to worship God in secret places? Places where no man sees, no human eye beholds, And yet knowing that your father will meet with you in secret, you find your heart longing to be with him in secret places. Are you able to come with some enthusiasm to worship in family and to be together as a family in the presence of God? What the Puritans frequently called that little church in the house. Are you able to come with excitement and enthusiasm? If you do, it is a sign of a heart that is well disposed to God. But if you are anxious for those times to be over so that you can simply get about your other business, it argues a heart that is ill-turned and self-absorbed. 
church? Are you uh, diligent in public worship? Remember, in public worship, a special blessing is promised. God promises a special visitation. And He always expresses a peculiar delight in public worship. Indeed, God is worthy to be glorified in all places, secret places, but also in public places. And indeed, since God is worthy to be glorified, public places where these things are publicly shown forth are indeed altogether fitting and perhaps even, you might say, the most fitting. Some years ago, I uh, had the opportunity to be privy to a conversation. I wasn't a participant, but I was there. One that I thought was very instructive. There was a group of men sitting around discussing things after a church service. And uh, one of the older men asked a younger man, to explain why his church attendance was so inconsistent. The young man who was, um, well, I think he fancied himself to be something of an intellectual, said that he in some ways preferred to be by himself with his uh, studies. And the older man's response was brief, but very much to the point. He told the young man, I do not think that you will like heaven very much. Isn't that something? We have been created for the worship of God and study certainly informs our worship. We'll come to that a little bit later on. But ultimately we have to get about the business of glorifying Him based on the truths that we have learned and enjoying Him as we have learned these things. Well, let us come to angelic worship. Remember, we have been in the history of angels. We've considered their creation, their fall. Remember that they were created in original holiness. Some maintained that original estate through God's election. But the reprobate angels fell. We are now in the period between that fall and their final judgment. And we take up the, uh, the general consideration of their employment. What do the holy angels do? What have they done in this, um, in this uh, administration of the covenant of grace this entire period? In your outline, we have two confessional statements that at least give us the answer in a broad outline. Confession of, I'm sorry, larger catechism 16. How did God create angels? God created all the angel spirits, immortal, holy, excelling in knowledge, mighty in power, to execute His commandments and to praise His name, yet subject to change. From this we are going to take our twofold outline. We'll start this week and finish next week. 
But here the divines give them two principal employments under which there are a great many details, a great many things that could be said, but they have two principal employments. They worship God. They praise Him. And they obey Him. They execute His commandments. He says, go and they go. He says, come and they come. Larger Catechism 19 gives us a little bit more information about their obedience. What is God's providence towards the angels? God, by His providence, permitted some of the angels willfully and irrecoverably to fall into sin and damnation, limiting and ordering that and all their sins to His own glory and establish the rest in holiness and happiness, employing them all at His pleasure in the administrations of His power, mercy, and justice. Here we find that the execution of God's decrees, larger catechism 16, is further defined and explained as being employed in the administrations of His power, mercy, and justice. I wanted to spend most of the morning this morning on that first employment, which is praise. And from the work that we have already done, I I hope that this is a point that is proven. We have already seen this uh, as we've considered other matters. You might think of Job chapter 38. They're portrayed as praising God and rejoicing in the work of creation as beings that were present at that time. But this is a convenient season to finish our exposition of Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. So uh, turn there with me, if you will, so that we might analyze what the Scriptures teach us in this place. Revelation chapter 5, beginning with verse 11. And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts, and the elders. And the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power, and riches, and wisdom, and strength, and honor and glory and blessing. We must remember the context. Here we have been given a spiritual view of the church in the midst of her worship. The four and twenty elders and the four living creatures all praising God in the preceding verses. But then it's as if our gaze widens And we are able to see gathered about the church of the redeemed an innumerable company of angels. And upon the worship of the church, they also add their worship. They add their amen. And it is a glorious picture indeed. We are told something about the manner of the worship of the angels as well as the content or matter of the worship. 
First of all, the manner of the angelic worship is fervent. This is indicated by this language of them uh, shouting out with great voices, saying with a loud voice. This speaks of the fervency of heart. They don't come to the service of worship dull, dry, or sleepy, but with hearts that are fully engaged. And then we come to the matter of worship and we we have a general statement and then seven specifics. First of all, they declare the worth of the slain lamb. Although the angels are not the beneficiaries or recipients of redemption, Nevertheless, they praise Jesus for that work of redemption. They see the work of Christ in these things, and they think that the work is wonderful and glorious. So they begin with a declaration of his worthiness. Notice the expression, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Uh, Some interpreters, and I... I would have to number myself in the midst of them, think it is significant that they don't say something like we praise or we esteem to be worthy or some such thing. Because it seems that they they are acknowledging in this that they are incapable of fully declaring his worthiness. In other words, they hold their worship ever to be inadequate to properly hold forth God's own glory, but rather they declare, declare his intrinsic worthiness to receive all these things in spite of their inability to fully ascribe these things to him in all propriety. So this, uh, his worthiness to be worshipped seems to even excel their own ability to worship. He is a great God indeed. Christ has all of these things, these uh, properties that are here described, and is worthy to receive the praise or the honor of them. In, in some ways, and many interpreters will simply notice the sevenfold heaping up of uh, ascriptions, and they'll simply say that this speaks of fullness. And we do pretty well, but we might be able to say a little bit more. It does seem that power here denotes his royal power, that Jesus Christ has both the right and the ability to rule, and that he is glorified as king, sitting at the right hand of the Father and doing all things well. And so is thus worthy to be praised. Riches are ascribed to him. All of the wealth of the kingdom belongs to him. You remember in the Old Testament we have uh, language that the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to our God. Here it is said that all of the wealth or the riches of the kingdom belong to him. And what is the extent of his kingdom? Do you remember? All. All of the creation belongs to him from the mightiest angel to the smallest molecule all of this uh, richness belongs to him as the scriptures say he is the heir of all things wisdom is ascribed to him he is worthy to be praised 
for that great and highest wisdom. You might think of Colossians chapters 1 and 2 when it says all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Him. And He exercises this great wisdom in the administration of the kingdom. Isaiah says, God shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge after the sight of his, of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ does not rule over us and make his decisions as one that must carefully study. But having the fullness of the Spirit and being very God himself, he judges these things according to an infinite and immediate wisdom and knowledge. The praise of strength belongs to him and he has displayed his great strength in his great victory over sin on Calvary's cross. The devil, as he ascended upon high and showed himself victorious over principalities and powers and even death, that last and great enemy. And he is so full of strength, he is well able to give strength to his people. Even though we are um, in the week after the Lord's Supper, do not forget the Lord's Supper and the promise of strength. Christ is full of strength. He is praised for His strength. And He is able to communicate His strength. Honor is ascribed to Him because of His great office. And glory is ascribed to Him because of His person. He is very and eternal God. And finally, blessing is ascribed to Him. Not that we add any blessedness to Him when we worship, but rather He is worthy of the worship and well-wishing of all. I hope that as you see His kingdom extending in the earth, you are able to say with full hearts, right on, O King Eternal, that your hearts are ever wishing Him well in His conquest. This is a very practical meditation, and I thought we might take away from this uh, a small handful of uses when we consider the example of the angels. The angels are fervent in worship, and we ought to be as well. The angels are fervent in worship, even concerning Redemption, even though they are not the beneficiaries of redemption. And how we ought to be humble to the dust that we as the beneficiaries worship with no more fervency, with no more heat than what we do. They benefit not from this, and yet they praise with these great and loud voices and hearts lifted up because they think that the work of Jesus is wonderful. We have become the uh, beneficiaries and yet we, uh, by comparison, are cold and sluggish. As we consider the activities of these great ones, we make a good use if we endeavor the stirring of our own hearts. Always remember, and this is very important and you should not imagine yourselves to be of a different sort of man, 
when you consider the history of religion in the world, there's always been a great tendency to formalism. That's not just in what has called itself Christianity and the true religion, but when you consider all of the world's religions, you will find a similar complaint that there is a coldness that people honor God with their lips and yet their hearts remain very far away. God is a spirit. You remember what Solomon said at the at the building of the temple. Here he's taken all this time and been at all of this pain and expense to build this temple only to say, but of course we recognize that we cannot serve you with our hands nor can we build a house that would contain you, nor can we do anything to profit you by doing these physical things. God is a spirit. You remember the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ to the Samaritan woman? She perceives that she has a prophet on her hands, and so she has a question that she'd like to have answered. Prophet? There was an ancient controversy between my people, the Samaritans, and the Jews. My fathers have always said that God was to be worshipped in Gerizim, that this was the place of God's choosing, and this is the house in which he is to be worshipped. And the Jews say that he's to be worshipped in Jerusalem. So since I have a prophet, what's the right answer? And Jesus says... The Jews are right. You worship, you know not what. Salvation is of the Jews. However, there's coming a time when the true worshipers of God will worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit and He seeks such to worship Him. Jesus, having said that the Jews, at least externally, are worshiping properly, saying that there was rapidly coming a time when the question she asked would be transcended. It would no longer be relevant. The question would no longer be, do we worship in Gerizim or Jerusalem? But the question would be, do we worship Him from our hearts or not? He is a spiritual being, and He will be satisfied with nothing less than a spiritual communion. During our worship, we must be engaged spiritually. We must be engaged intellectually and loving God with all of our minds. We must be engaged emotionally. When these truths are presented to our minds, there can be little doubt that if we receive them in faith, if we really believe them to be true, it will have an emotional impact upon us. And there can also be very little doubt that we are so little moved because we so little believe these things or think so little of them or think so little upon them. And so they touch us far less than they should. Jonathan Edwards, in defending the first great awakening, there were many strange manifestations that made the Puritans uncomfortable. Um, There were services when the word of God was preached and people would faint dead away. Uh, 
And there was also other strange manifestations. And many of the theologians complained that all of this was unseemly. Jonathan Edwards said that he he didn't want to defend all of it because, of course, we all know that people can be stirred up emotionally about nothing. Sometimes we're just stirred up about being stirred up for some strange thing uh, like that. But Edwards also pointed out, if a man hears the doctrine of God's wrath and perceives himself to be liable to that and begins to come under some apprehension of the suffering of hell and sees himself as dangling above that pit and can any moment fall into it, and it is only the hand of a provoked God that yet holds him out of that pit, if a man were really to believe that he was in such a danger like that, really believe it, what do you think his emotional response would be? If a mother can faint dead away to hear that her son has been in an accident, could a person not also faint dead away to see themselves as being liable to this great judgment if they really believe it and have some sight and some sense of it? If a person perceives himself to have been rescued out of this great calamity by the great God himself who endured the calamity for his sake what sort of joy or rejoicing might you say what tears what love what passion well Edwards in his treatise on the religious affections said that if God has not unwisely created us with affections, with emotions, then certainly they are worthy to be exercised of those things that are most worthy of them. Now what could be more worthy of our affections than this great and glorious gospel proclaimed to us by this great and glorious Jesus? If there is anything in heaven or on earth that is worth being happy about or sad about, It is this and this great business. So when we come to our worship, we ought to come as people who are engaged. We engage the mind, it's true, because when it comes to the stirring of the heart, it must be about true things, substantial things, reality. But once that reality has been proclaimed and believed, if it's believed indeed, it ought to stir the heart. A second uh, use, very much like the angels, let us enlarge our knowledge so that it might inform our praise. The uh, acquisition of Christian truth ought not to be a cold or soulless endeavor. This is one of the great temptations of the devil and one of the ways that he works error in us. He, rather than seeing a truth the way that it is, he will try to get us to bounce from one extreme to the other. We have always known, for example, uh, uh, we might know some enthusiastic types who are very much exercised in their emotions over very little substance. And so the reaction is to become somewhat coolly 
intellectual and hardly moved. And then uh, others will look at us coolly intellectual and hardly moved and bounce to the other extreme and say it's not the intellect that's important, but rather the heart. When the reality of the matter is both of these things in the whole man, is it not? We've been commanded to love the Lord, our God, with every faculty of our beings, with our minds and with our hearts indeed. And so the acquisition of Christian truth ought never to be a cold endeavor. But every fresh discovery of divine truth or every reminder of a truth well known and long known ought to move us to worship our God. Indeed, that ought to be the end of everything that we learn. We hear these wonderful things concerning our God and his gospel, and our hearts ought to be lifted up. And we have not yet learned anything as we ought until it moves us to worship. This is the angelic example that is presented in front of us. Although they excel us in wisdom, they are portrayed in the scripture as endeavoring to learn more, they no doubt meditate upon the old things that they've known. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they delight to meditate upon the old things. But as there was a fresh revelation of God's mercy in the gospel, they are portrayed as a longing to study it, to look into it so that they might know more about God, but to the end that they might worship him this is what we have in our text before us they have learned things from the gospel there has been a fresh discovery of the attributes of God and it moves them to a heartfelt to a hearty praise even though they are not the proper beneficiaries of that redemption Indeed, they are made servants in the economy of that redemption. We'll come to that next week. But consider their holy delight, how they love to learn just one thing more about their God. And having learned that one thing more, they lift up their hearts and worship. And one final thing. Let us further exercise ourselves in worship. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him. And there is no vehicle uh, in this world that is better for the accomplishment of both of those ends than our worship. And I think every one of us can say that God is worthy of more than what we have yet done. And so let us further exercise ourselves because He is worthy. We will come back to this great theme in uh, this singing of Psalm 103. But before we finish today, I thought we might get just a little bit of a start into our next uh, division here, which is that second employment, the execution of God's commands. Turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 103.
if I if I might re- relate something that I found very helpful on this on this previous theme, uh, the life of the mind and of the heart. I remember my it was one of my very first days at Westminster Seminary. I went to a a chapel service. And um, Westminster, of course, had very rigorous academic standards. Uh, I could quite literally read all of the day long and sometimes did. They talked about the uh, at this chapel service this intellectual exercise in the life of the mind. But the chaplain was saying that we must also uh, leave time for uh, the devotional life as well, and I understand what he was what he was meaning, but there was still, I think, a, an unhappy or uh, infelicitous bifurcation of things that need to be drawn together. It's not as if we uh, make a part of our time for the life of our mind and then another part for the life of the heart. But these things are best exercised when they are drawn together. So your life of study does become a life of worship as well. And all of your times of worship are informed by your study and they're drawn together. It occurred to me that if um, if uh, some of our fathers in the faith, you might think of Augustine, if Augustine had been present at the chapel service that day, he might have said something like this based on his own habits. Well, what's the difference? I believe it's the 10th or the 11th book of his confessions. If you want to pull it off the shelf and look at it, I'd recommend it. You have a sophisticated meditation upon being and time, all in the form of a prayer. Is Augustine exercising his intellect? Yes. Is he worshiping God? Yes. And he did most of his intellectual exercise in the context of the worshiping of God. We uh, need to draw ourselves together into a complete man. Okay, concerning the execution of commands, Psalm 103, verses 20 and 21. Bless the Lord, ye his angels that excel in strength, that do his commandments, hearkening hearkening unto the voice of his word. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, Ye ministers of His that do His pleasure. This is to state it in the most general that in addition to their praise, the angels are completely given to obedience at God's pleasure, whatever God commands them to do, they do. But we can say more with respect to some common particular areas of employment. So note that they they obey in whatever God tells them to do, but there have been some common ways in which God has employed them. And to this end, turn back with me in your Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 10. The first area of service is in God's general providential dominion. So they serve in God's general providential dominion. And first, we are taught by the scripture that they are active in unseen ways 
in global national events. Active in unseen ways in global national events, carrying out the commandments of God. Daniel chapter 10, beginning in verse 20. I must confess that I am about um, half afraid to even bring this text up. I recently did uh, an extensive amount of reading on this portion of Daniel, only to end up with more questions than I have answers. But I was able to draw at least one conclusion with some certainty. Daniel chapter 10, verse 20. Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael your prince. There is a great question over the identity of the prince of Persia and the prince of Grecia. Some interpreters take this simply to be references to their kings, that the Medo-Persian Empire and her king is soon to be overthrown by the arrival of the prince of Grecia, Alexander the Great. Others have taken this to be, uh, not to deny that, but rather the princes that are in view here are not the earthly kings so much, but rather uh, demonic principalities. You say, well, Pastor, what's the right answer? I I don't know. This is one of those questions where I do think probably an answer can be had. But having exercised myself in it for some time, I still can't claim to have it. Um, I can say this, however, that whether however we might take the prince of Persia and the prince of Grecia, this angel that is speaking with Daniel is clearly involved in those national events. He is portrayed as going to fight with this prince of Persia, which in turn opens the way for this uh, prince of Grecia to come. Another example of this, some of you will remember, we once had this in a sermon. You remember in Ezekiel chapters 1 and 10, God's chariot is portrayed as being composed of four cherubs and each one of these has a wheel. And those wheels are likely images of God's providence rolling on. And God gives them commandments and they shoot out quick as a flash and then they come back quick as a flash as agents of God's uh, general providence. These are certainly high and lofty employments that they are engaged in. And apart from special revelation, we don't detect their engagement. We simply know that they are active. And there's no reason to doubt that they are active to the present day in these things, continuing to be engaged in this. They are also active in God's general providential dominion in the punishment of God's enemies. Uh, we looked at this uh, text, Second uh, Kings chapter 19, verse 35. You don't need to turn there. But this is the overthrow of Sennacherib's army by this mighty angel of the Lord that kills 185,000 uh, before the morning time. 
a great and powerful angel executing the just judgment of God against his enemies. In Acts chapter 12, you might also think of uh, Herod, who has already persecuted James to the death, has a similar design against Peter and the other apostles. The people acknowledge him to be more than a man and a god. And then the angel of the Lord smites him and his internals are eaten up with worms. So we see angels involved in the judgment of God's enemies. Obedient indeed and great in might and power indeed. And finally, and we'll take this up next week, Lord willing, is that they have a service in God's special providence to his church. And so next week I want to at least start by considering the relationship of the angelic host to Jesus Christ himself as mediator and their relationship to the church. Because these do appear to be the principal concerns of the scripture. And then perhaps we might even be able to continue on to consider consider the activity of the devils from the time of their fall to their uh, final judgment. Let us conclude with the singing of Psalm 103. Verses 19 to 22 to the tune Crediton.